It's Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021, and this is the Talk Film Society podcast. I'm your host, Marcelo Pico, editor-in-chief of Talk Film Society, here to introduce yet another Talk Film Society podcast. This is episode 98, uh, and I have two great guests uh, over two great segments talking about two great movies. First, uh, me and Alex Isaac discuss Spencer. After that, me and Jacob DeNoble discuss Eternals. And I will say, this was this one's another long episode. This is uh, just about two hours long, uh, both segments together. And spoilers. There will be spoilers for each. I mean, and Spencer, sure, uh, you know, based on true events, but still, if you don't want to get spoiled about... Uh, uh, just how the film plays out and what uh, what what you can expect from the movie, then yeah, uh, watch the movie first. That's my recommendation. First, watch the movie, watch Spencer and Eternals actually, uh, because we do spoil Eternals too. Uh, but yeah, that's just that's the warning. Uh, we 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 go in depth with Spencer first, and then Eternals after that, uh, and we all enjoyed. Our, our respective movies uh, me and Alex enjoyed Spencer and me and Jacob enjoyed Eternals so that's what's happening in this episode and before we get into it uh, plugs uh, talkfilmsociety.com obviously that's the that's the mothership talkfilmsociety.com and also patreon patreon.com slash talkfilmsociety uh, so go there support us on patreon uh, uh, everything that uh, that is given there to us uh, by way of money, which is how capitalism works, uh, helps us run the site, helps the site stay up, and helps uh, put out these podcasts uh, uh, weekly. Um, I think at this rate, uh, I and like the other editors at Talk Film Society have put out an episode a week of, at, at least for five years. So that's something. That's thanks to everybody who's donated. Uh, uh, to the Patreon, so thank you. Oh, and let me uh, run through a recommendation before I toss it to the episode, because that's that's the normal thing that's happening on these uh, on these intros. Uh, the souvenir and the souvenir part two. Uh, I was lucky enough to see both of those movies in a theater this past weekend, uh, directed by Joanne Hogg, and highly recommend it. Uh, the souvenir. Uh, first one is on VOD and I believe on Showtime uh, as of this recording uh, so please if uh, check that one out and if you're a fan of that one check out The Souvenir Part 2 which is in theaters now and hopefully it'll, it'll be on uh, VOD soon uh, knowing A24 and how they work uh, but yeah if you haven't checked out The Souvenir or The Souvenir Part 2 um, seek them out they're, they're, they're excellent little movies Little movies, that seems diminutive, but uh, they're indies. And they definitely say a lot uh, when it comes to uh, art and how artists, uh, specifically filmmakers, um, take their real life and make it into something. Um, that's all I'll say uh, about the Souvenir and Souvenir Part 2. Um, especially very meta when it comes to Souvenir Part 2. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's my recommendation for the, for the week. Those two movies. Um, again, part two is in theaters now. And that's it. That's all I want to cover in this intro for this two-hour episode. Um, that's enough of me. So please listen and enjoy 
uh, to this conversation. First with me and Alex discussing Spencer, and then later with me and Jacob discussing Eternals. Alex, welcome back to the Talk Thank you. Film Society podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm happy you're here. Um, I always like to do this. There, there's no reason why I, I, I should do stuff like this, where I say uh, a few weeks ago we recorded a segment for something else, and then afterwards mm-hmm. I was like, well, you know, you're great to talk to, like, you know, love to have you back for a future segment. And we started talking about Spencer. And then I was like, oh, perfect. I'll have you back to talk about Spencer. And it's happening. Um, and I'm, I'm excited now to, to talk to you about this new movie, uh, which I've been looking forward to for, for seemingly months, maybe years now. Um, and why don't we get started? Spencer. Okay. Okay. Um, Spencer. Talk to me about your... I mean, well, let's start with this. Were you excited to see this film? Like, where like, uh, where were you in terms of, like, being a fan of the director's previous work or the fan, or a fan of Kristen Stewart? Talk to me about uh, your anticipation for Spencer. Yeah, so I think I definitely um, had the more mainstream perception of Kristen Stewart when this project was announced. So I was baffled that they chose her to play Diana. It was like, I didn't really understand it. Um, and then it kind of took going into her more recent non-Twilight, um, you know, <laughs> work to realize like, okay, she does have range um, and, you know, she might be able to pull this off. Um, the director, I am familiar with his previous work, um, Jackie, and that's very similar actually to Spencer. There's a lot of parallels I think you can draw um, between the two and a lot of common themes. Um, love Jackie though. Uh, I know like a lot of people weren't really as stoked about it, but I thought it was a great film. Um, and so found out that he was the director, so felt confident. And then um, just reading all of the uh, festival um press coming out about it and what people were saying made me really excited um i'm not very familiar with diana or her story i kind of just know you know she was married into the family and then she died and it was tragic and everyone was upset about it um but that was before i was born i believe um <laughs> so making me feel old <laughs> i'm sorry no like uh, harry and william are more my royals you yeah. know i know a lot about them but i'd say before that like not that much but i I have done a lot of um, reading and uh, thinking and writing on historic films, specifically ones that concern the monarchy. So these would be films like um, The King's Speech, uh, Victoria, um, you know, films like that. Um, So with with my knowledge of that, I was also interested to see how this film would sort of play out um yeah and yeah and i'm excited to talk to you about those aspects because i know next to nothing <laughs> about <laughs> those aspects was, uh, i'll tell you this uh i mentioned i am old um i remember uh, the news of this happening um mm. from what i from from my memory i was like 11 so folks mm. listening at home, do the math, and you find out how, how old I am. But I was 11. Okay, here's my memory of it. I was watching, I think, Mad TV, <laughs> which was, <laughs> I think, I th- <laughs> okay, um, th- this could be totally wrong, but this is how I remember it. I was watching Mad TV or something 
to something adjacent to that on like a, a Saturday night or weekend night, wh- whenever it was playing, and they interrupted it to to say, "Hey, uh, Princess Diana passed away. It was a horrible accident." I remember that distinctly. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember that and uh, Selena dying uh, yeah. in the '90s. Those were like the, the two mm-hmm. big ones for me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just uh, growing up after that, and even before then, like, I, I don't know, I was a stupid kid, like, uh, uh, watching, like, Entertainment Tonight and stuff, and, like, I, I, I kind of knew who she was in, in the public eye, you know, pre and post her death, and then coming into Spencer, I, I kind of, I'm not, a, I'm not huge into, you know, ro- royal watching, I'm not sure exactly how all that works but you know in the recent news with like harry and everything i i kind of knew you know it's not a good thing (laughs) you know yeah i'm I'm happy that you know people could can you know escape from that world if they so choose to um and then after watching the movie i read more about princess diana and like her real life experiences and her real life dealings with like mental health and yeah i i i now have a, a appreciation for this movie more than before because uh, and this leads into Jackie too because I, I I love Jackie but oh, I, yeah. I I accept that uh, the director uh, Pablo Lorin uh, and his uh, screenwriter I think I think both um, Jackie and Spencer are written by the same uh, writer too uh, okay. I'll double check but even this film starts with like I think uh, um, you know before the movie starts it says a fable I believe right it's a fable of a true tale is yes. what it said yes. for this one yeah and um, you know I I knew there was going to be some you know playing with like you know the truth and like have it be be more fictionalized than 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 maybe um you know you would think coming into a biopic and i just i looked it up it's a different screenwriter for jackie uh mm-hmm. nor uh noah oppenheimer wrote jackie and stephen knight wrote uh spencer just to make it clear okay. but i know just the, just knowing the director uh uh lauren just uh you know he likes to fictionalize and like make it more of a myth more than real life but and then we'll get into this in a bit, but uh, yeah, he put enough truth in there, and you know, enough fiction to make it like a fable too. That I don't know the real portrait of Princess Diana kind of came out, and uh, knowing as much as I know about Diana and like um, you know her her kids and the, the the monarchy as it stands today, like yeah, it's I I, I think I think he handles the subject matter well. Um, mm-hmm. Now I'm going to toss it to you, Alex. What, uh, what did you think of um, of Spencer overall, and just like your your knowledge of what you know, you know, and, and what you brought uh, in uh, with with what you know? Like, tell me about your reaction to Spencer. I think I kind of have three big takeaways um, that I've kind of mulled over since seeing it yesterday. Um, the first thing that really stood out to me, obviously, I think, is Kristen Stewart's performance. Yeah. Um, absolutely impossible for me to look away from the screen whenever she was on um i don't know i think she like i think diana herself was very captivating everyone just wanted to watch her everyone just wanted to see her you know like they wanted to know about her and everything and i think similarly you know kristen stewart as diana like you just want to watch her what she's doing the whole time um so again her performance is what stood out to me i think the use of sound specifically oh yeah um the way they use music the way that they 
make like you know the audio that they use whenever um diana has like a panic attack or like a, a is going through a very difficult mental episode you know on screen um i thought that was very visceral um made me very feel very physically ill but it puts you in her mindset right um i think all in all um the mise-en-scene works to make you see what's going on through her mindset um even from the very beginning you know i think that very first shot to me i was like this is overexposed i was like you know the sky's <laughs> kind of blown out a bit it's a little grainy too and you're just like why did they like this doesn't like this isn't like the romantic england countryside that we're used to you know like why is it overexposed and i think again it's just to put you in a state of discomfort yeah you know like you are seeing this place through diana's eyes it's beautiful but you don't feel comfortable there you're not invite it's not inviting right it's kind of putting you at a distance um and then even when they bring in the food and like the cases that look like it carries like military weapons um because you know for diana i think like food is so combative you know it's such like a warfare for her so again like I, so all that stood out to me just visually and the sound how it works to put you in her mindset from the beginning you were in her head um and then third is kind of um when i what, what you mentioned before what i'm bringing into this and that's kind of how i've learned to look at historic film and it's not necessarily when you have a historic film you're not the director and the creative crew they're not really trying to say something about the year in which the events happened, right? It's more about, it's more so a commentary on something that's going on today, um, or that's like a way you can look at it, right? Right. And I think the biggest thing that this movie does in that regard is it shows how the, like, I'm trying to think of how to put this, like in most films concerning the monarchy, right? The antagonist is usually, almost always, um, the public. Right. You know, the public as a collective sphere, or the old, the one old established monarch that the new monarch is kind of taking their place. Right. Like this is a very basic answer, not a historic film, but think about like a very niche audience. But in Cinderella two, <laughs> um, <laughs> like you know, it's she's. Like, you know, I guess, well, I guess Cinderella 2 isn't really, like, is probably more actually in line with this movie. But typically, like, when you think about it, like, there is, like, the old monarch, and they're very set in their ways, and then the new monarch has to kind of come in and change things up a little bit, right? Right. Um, and that's kind of, like, the moral of the story. But here, like, Queen Elizabeth herself is not the antagonist. She only has, like, two lines in that film. You know, like, Diana runs out to her on Christmas and says, like, your speech was great. And then they talk about clothes. And then I think Queen Elizabeth says something about like not following what the dresser wants or something. And it's a, in my mind, I was like, wow, that's a very like nice conversation. You know, I was expecting Queen Elizabeth to be like quite hostile and like kind of like, you know, not really wanting to talk to her. But that's because Elizabeth herself isn't the enemy here. It is the institution of monarchy yeah. and those who are trying to uphold it. Right. So it's kind of shifting. Um, the, like shifting like the shifting it from like an individual to a collective right like an idea or a system and the people who are there to uphold it specifically like you know the the major who makes her you know weigh in when she walks in and who like watches her every move you know and tells her she has to close the curtains all the time um he's really the one who you're like 
oh, he's not like, you know, not the bad guy, but like the bad guy of the movie, right? Right. Um, so yeah, those were kind of my big takeaways from everything. Yeah, and going to that real brief conversation um, mm-hmm. that Diana has with um, the queen, to get, mm-hmm. they, they talk about clothes, and then at the end of that conversation, um, the queen brings up the fact that you end up as a royal, as like on money and, and as currency, and that's all they mm-hmm. see you as, as currency. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that I thought that was super important because... Uh, here's my hot take on this movie i see this as a horror movie (laughs) i see this yes yeah oh my gosh okay yeah i have thoughts on that too but continue i mean yeah i'll just say i see this akin to the shining (laughs) because Mm -hmm. i feel like it's in some shots it's similar it's similar to that uh because Mm -hmm. this old house there oh and i should say the plot uh this takes place over a few days over christmas uh holidays uh december 1991 is what it says here on wikipedia Mm -hmm. so i have to believe that um (laughs) and yeah and much like uh jackie where it shows you like this um a brief amount of time in somebody's life in in jackie's life uh uh the assassination of her husband and her uh, struggling through that over you know a few weeks months it doesn't show the full her full life it only shows like segments of it this mm-hmm. similar to that shows a very brief time in diana's life but you get exactly uh, again this like um this feeling of her being restricted being haunted by ghosts of the past by this yep. monarchy that you know that's telling her to do things and she doesn't want to do them and right. and you get that that um that that uh that brief you know um you know, again it's not like this is like based all in, on reality but you get that sense of like that's who she was and i got mm-hmm. that from experiencing this you know holiday weekend where again um the music the the way it's shot um, these fantasy sequences, um, mm-hmm. all of it made it made it seem like yes, um, you are with her. You're as an audience member, you're living through this with her, and it's not mm-hmm. fun. It's not fun no. at all. It's horrific that at times. That soup yeah. scene. Yeah, like, that's the one I, I'm thinking I of. Yeah, felt so ill. It's interesting because traditionally gothic media is so visceral and so uh, I can't like it's just physically uncomfortable to experience right um and speaking on the horror film genre like you were just talking about which is based in gothic media like gothic novels from you know the 1800s 1900s um yeah like it's they're all all the women in those books are you know mentally crazy as people would say mentally ill would probably be more apt you know if you know, they were had the knowledge of it then but that's the subject of spencer right is we have right. we're watching a woman struggle to deal with her mental health in an already very constraining and toxic system right which just kind of amplifies it um which is interesting because as she gains more agency throughout the film you know she's able to kind of move away from it like i feel like at the end it's very triumphant almost because like she gets out of there she's eating the you know we don't really see her eat the kfc but you know like it's she's deciding what she wants to eat instead of someone telling her what she's gonna eat you know like this the 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 tension that you had in the beginning you don't really get at the end at all right so it almost like for me when i was watching it i was kind of like waiting for like the you know a 
I guess like the soup scene was like the the biggest moment for me throughout the whole. You know that like had right. the most tension for me, right? I don't know, like I I feel like that end sequence, which was supposed to be the climax, you know, works, but it just didn't have this. Like you would you were I would expect it to build higher than that soup scene, but it didn't. But I think that was kind of the point, right? You know, she's trying to like extract herself from the situation she's in right now that's causing her to feel that much tension and um all that yeah i don't know how you felt about how the tension built but like did you feel similarly or did you think it built nicely i think i think it um i think that was the peak but not not to say like it um it wasn't still as as horrific or as like it, uh, I'd say that was okay that was the most like that soup scene where she ends up eating her pearls spoiler alert um, yeah. <laughs> by the way <laughs> nobody should care about spoilers about Spencer because it is just so at times just so bizarre but only in uh, I say bizarre only in that like it it it, it um, you're seeing it through Diana's eyes and you know she's been you know living this way for at this point in the movie like 10 years now 10 years yeah, yeah. and she's reaching her breaking points because I think shortly after this um, she you know she, she, she leaves um, mm-hmm. the family um, but like that soup scene the pearl scene that, that is kind of like the the point where you're like oh this is like this is terrifying and then yeah. through that there are times when it is more grounded, but still there are moments where you don't know exactly what's re- what's real, what's not. Like mm-hmm. another scene that I just found visceral, not as visceral as that scene, is like when she has the wire uh, cutters. Oh, God. She cuts open yeah. the curtains, and then she cuts herself, which uh, then later, like, you like you don't, like... You don't see the mark. Exactly. You're not sure if that yeah. was real or not. But what's interesting is, like, something I didn't know, and again, I am no expert. I just did some cursory research before recording. Apparently she had uh, Dana in real life had a history of self harm, and and also the the bulimia, which is like another thing that makes the movie hard to watch at times. Is like oh, yeah. apparently that was also based in reality too, um, and yeah, and then and then going to what you mentioned earlier, the, the the whole food aspect of it, like this is a movie where like it. You, <laughs> I did not feel good about food while watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> which which I think is purposeful because yeah, yeah and it, it, I, you know it's a surprising thing to say when like the food on display look it's supposed to be good it's supposed to I don't know if it's supposed to look good but like on, on paper like there's like lobsters and like beautiful cakes and like all these desserts but I had no appetite for any of that while watching this because it just really felt uh, 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 not again like it it, it, it it accurately puts you in the eyes of this Diana on screen and Spencer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, uh, almost every bite she takes uh, when she's at these tables, when she, like, she's a, she has all these eyes on her, not appealing at all. So yeah, oh, o- no. overall that feeling stayed um, for me. And uh, I, I just felt so good at the end when she did leave. <laughs> I felt that yes. was like a, a triumphant moment in the movie. And yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll, you know. Well, going on the topic of food, because that yeah. got me thinking now. Like, they treat it with such seriousness as they do warfare. You know, I kind of mentioned in the beginning, like, I, like, because in the very beginning, they bring in, like, those big, like, military grade 
boxes that the food is in and then like later on they end up packing baskets and so i think in my head i was like were they really like those really intense boxes that we saw before were they baskets all along i couldn't figure that out um but then the chef when he is going over the menu and overseeing all of his employees it's very militaristic you know it's like he it's they're all in like i the precision you need to be like a chef of that level i feel like is very similar to like how the precision of like a milit you know like an army or something but like you know he's like be like one big thing that got me was he's always telling them to be quiet you know they have to be stealthy almost like they can't know we're down here you know it's like it's like you know it's like so i feel like that places like the mistrust of it in our heads so early on because it's treated with like you know food is passion you know like food's supposed to make you feel something but it's like they're trying to strip that all away from this and make us not trust it from the beginning um and then like yeah everything like when they're listing off the food even like it doesn't sound appetizing like i think of that scene toward the end where the major is and again it's a major who's sitting there in front of christmas dinner and announcing what everyone's going to eat right yeah and it's so you know like the way he delivers it and it just doesn't sound appetizing you know like you're just sitting there and you're like man like you're nervous about it you know like you have no reason to be nervous it's this huge feast but yet you feel nervous about it but which which like that is i when you live with an eating disorder that's how your brain works you know you can't trust food yeah exactly and and also reading up about it like you know her disorder in real life was you know um it it, it didn't help being in this family you know it, right. it, it, it you know things just you know escalated um and those moments in the movie of self-harm like with her and the wire cutters and then and you know with her on on the stairs apparently mm-hmm. she did toss herself from stairs in real life too like that was mm-hmm. that moment is based on fact too like all mm-hmm. of this and the bulimia uh, it's 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 like it's it's like an insurmountable thing like i just did feel just and the fact that like 90 percent of this movie takes place in that giant house right it, go, going to that first scene they mentioned like with those soldiers bringing in that food like mm-hmm. the like a sign you see early on in the movie like maybe two minutes in is is a sign that says like like we were saying before like um like uh keep it quiet because mm-hmm. people can hear you and right that also is another thing that really got under my skin the fact that everybody whispers in this movie like it's mm. it's unsettling how how like diana uh, and also the Stanley Hawkins character, who she's talking to her 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 dresser Maggie. Maggie, yeah. yeah. They're constantly constantly whispering. Like almost every conversation Diana has, like with people, um, is whispering. Like her and the head chef, and her and her her husband. Like at times, like they're whispering, but then like they're fighting. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, and then as the film progresses, you get that sense that like there's no secrets. Like there's nothing that Diana can say that somebody can't hear which is uh, it again it, i think it adds to that sense of for me true horror of like living yeah. in this house having no secrets um having even maybe a friend like you trust like spilling the beans on you saying like you're not well so uh it's totally unsettling this whole experience and it's and it's also interesting when you think about 
like institution here really is the enemy because they're the ones telling her like we only do this so that the public doesn't do this to you right right like it's and it's setting up the public as like an evil thing and like as some as the true um you know like the true antagonist you know the one that she needs to be afraid of but at the end of the film maggie leaves her that note that says i'm not the only one who loves you like insinuating like she's adored by the public you know they're not the ones she needs to be worried about it's from within you know so again paying you know nodding to all those previous monarch films where you know the monarch and the public are at odds throughout i think of um emily blunt's victoria film you know she's constantly at odds with the public in that film and never is able to mend that you know and so all this to say like again to psychologically torture her you know and really driving in this whole like horror element like you know the, all the everything she needs to be scared of is inside because even when she's in the at the very end and she's in the convertible like you know the windows are down the top is off they get their kfc they're just sitting out by um tower bridge you know and you feel like she is the same even though she is out in public and doesn't have security or whatever you feel she's safe yeah finally yeah um which is crazy yeah and and like at that point at the very end when like she feels like you, you get uh, it was that relief i was talking about like yes they're finally gone and at the that final scene at the end like she, mm-hmm. she she's out and about but she has like a hat on i think at, at, mm-hmm. at one point she has sunglasses so it's like she, yeah she's in disguise it's very uh, i i mentioned this like because th- this reminded me of um like what what diana went through in spencer and then at the very end like escaping that and being out in public and like feeling Mm -hmm. safe even though she's out in public it made me think of like uh earlier a few days before this was released kristen stewart said in an interview that this was a personal story for her you know to to play Mm -hmm. diana because she felt that there are parallels between the real life kristen stewart persona and like her being made a, a such a public figure like so young and also trying to keep her privacy while being, you know, that celebrity. And one story I like telling is like, um, and, and I think we talk more about Kristen Stewart here because like, I I, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about her performance more. But yeah. um, I saw The Runaways at South by Southwest um, like 11 years ago. Um, and Kristen Stewart was there with like the cast and, and, and some of the crew. And she, I mean, at that point, I knew it's like, oh, I, I, I love her as an uh, as an actor. She's amazing. Like she's more than just these Twilight movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw her on stage, and she just felt like a very real person. And she had this very this like this awkwardness that just like was very. Uh, it was it was it was sweet to see a person be so like real and that at one point she was like crouching because like she just felt uncomfortable it's like oh I, I was like i get it i get kristen stewart as a person just seeing her yeah. on stage um and then after that you know she's she's done so much to kind of like veer away from just being known as like the twilight actress and and then seeing that parallel and you were saying earlier like how a movie like this you know uh, says something about the present too i saw that parallel like how celebrity um, you know, is built on like these expectations uh, that we draw from these people, and it can be it. It is draining. It is draining, and I felt like oh, yeah. Kristen Stewart really put some of that, some of her own 
uh, personal experiences in this movie, and and I'll just say like it's it's the best I've seen of her. Like it's uh, I, I oh it's phenomenal. There, I mean, I love other movies she's done. I love like even like Charlie's Angels. But like when I see mm-hmm. a movie like Charlie's Angels. That to me is Kristen Stewart, like playing, like you know, uh, first and foremost to see her in that in, in a role like that. But in this, I just saw the the, the characterization of Diana. That's all I saw, and mm-hmm. it's it's outstanding. So yeah, um, I love Kristen Stewart in this. Um, I don't know how much more you can say about Kristen Stewart, Alex, um, and <laughs> just her portrayal, but uh, it's it's it, it's it's outstanding. It is, and I read I was reading a little bit coming into this as well, and I read somewhere that. You know, she was very nervous to do something that was so, like, she had to embody someone else so well, um, even giving herself lockjaw, like, trying to perfect the accent, Diana's accent. Right. Um, and so she was very worried about it, you know, going in, like, worried she wasn't going to hit the right notes or that she was going to overthink it. It wasn't going to come across. But she said after, like, the first day or the first week, it was very freeing, you know, to have this structure to work in and then that she had mastered that structure. And then by mastering, you know, like, all those basics, she's able to kind of just move freely about it, you know, in someone else's body, which, you know, I definitely get. You know, she seems... Like, it's definitely not her, you know, when she's walking and stuff. And it's like, and it's the same thing that um, Natalie Portman did with Jackie and Jackie's voice, right? Like, everyone was commenting, like, you know, like, she sounds weird in the movie, but that's how Jackie talked, you know? Like, that's like, and so I think very characteristic of this director and like kind of what he wants. But um, yeah, like, could not, I don't think they could have cast this better. Um, I know I mentioned before, like, she's on screen, you just want to, watch and i think a part of that is like kristen stewart understood public diana she understood mother diana she understood wife diana um and un- and understood like royal diana but then also like private diana right like there's so many different sides to this woman that we are seeing um you know and that obviously creates the tension and all of that but like it's it's just so it was so interesting to watch and you just i feel like i kept watching because i was trying to figure out like okay where is like diana spencer right like you see a lot of like bits and pieces of the facade and it was most interesting when she had those moments where you know she felt so pressured by expectation that she cracks a little bit right because you see like a glimpse of like this is how she's really feeling in this situation right because you feel it's just so buried you know in like everything that's going on in her head um but ultimately what it that's what makes a captivating performance right you were trying to understand this person that you're seeing on screen um and also rooting for her because you know, she, I, you know, I feel like Diana is a very sympathetic character in this movie, and you want her to get out, you want her to leave Charles, you want her to go and do her own thing, um, because she's just so miserable in that house. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I should also mention like the rest of the cast is like mm-hmm. is excellent too. Uh, yeah. W- uh, one of my favorites is Sean Harris as the chef. And it's 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 funny, interesting, uh, not not necessarily coincidental, but because he's a great actor and should be getting he should be getting cast in as much as possible. But uh, another film I love him in from the series, The Green Knight, 
uh, where, where he plays oh. the king, which is another okay. nice connection to, to, to royalty. Um, yeah. And uh, and he's, he's outstanding because like, I'm so used to watching him in like the Mission Impossible movies where he's like the villain. <laughs> but for him to be this sympathetic character, although also with like a hint of like, you don't exactly know if you can trust him or not but mm-hmm. he's very sweet he, he, like he's very he wants to you know help and understand what Dan's going through um, uh, but again he's also very much like in line with like um, with what's happening uh, in terms of like right. okay you know we're, we're doing these meals like everybody should be on point etc etc but yeah I think he especially him in this movie he bounces that line of like trying to be in line with like this process but also being sympathetic uh or or, or you know understanding what dan is yeah. going through um uh how do, you, but how do you feel about him or the rest of the cast alex i really liked him because i think you can really see in his care he really played that struggle between um you know serving the crown which is his role as chef for the crown and caring for a woman, you know, like caring for this woman who's clearly going through so much. Um, and yeah, very earnest performance, which I thought was great. I loved seeing uh, Sally Hawkins in this um, Yeah. as Maggie. And I, it was funny because, you know, as a gay woman, I was <laughs> watching this and thinking like, wow, like Diana and Maggie, like they really have kind of like a, more than friends kind of vibe that I'm getting. Um, But I was like, yeah, but they're not gonna, like that's just how they do these things, you know, to show that women are close and just good friends. Like I was like, nothing's gonna happen. And then at the end for Maggie to come around and be like, no, I love you like that. I was like, (laughs) oh, they did go there. (laughs) Which I also think is a great, like, you know, nod to the fact of Kristen Stewart coming out recently you know saying that she and her girlfriend are getting married and everything i was like oh my god it all intersects like this is so funny um you know but i just thought like it was like whenever (sighs) maggie just radiated safe space energy throughout the whole film yeah you know you saw like as soon as you saw her like as an audience member i was just relieved whenever she was there and that was before you know she left in the movie and Diana was insisting that she come back, you know, and really like emphasizing the importance of Maggie in her life. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that performance again. They whispered all the time. Um, but you know, that was the point, obviously I love, this is just a random, not necessarily performance choice, but like a, like a director choice. Love that the first shot we get of Charles is of his bald spot. Ah, I was like, yeah. that is such a dig. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like that's mean, but all right. Um, but I thought, um, yeah, I thought he did a good job too. Um, and then the major, like, in ge- I, I can't, I don't know actors off the top of my head as well as you do. Um, uh, Timothy so Spall is uh yes. the, the uh, major alistair gregory yes and he's been in a few things that i've seen before yeah um always kind of playing like a very regimented character uh, maybe not so much um antagonistic as this guy um and it was interesting too because i felt like like clearly like his one goal throughout all this is to serve the crown but i thought it's just like i thought it was weird because I f- couldn't ever really tell if he was like. There's moments where I was like, "Oh, does he actually like 
because I felt like he could be a lot more of a like of a um a lot more cold towards Diana you know like if he actually was so set on serving the crown I felt like his his direction was a lot more gentler than I would have expected um but maybe you know that's just to emphasize the point that like people did care for her you know outside like people who worked within this system who were able to interact with her on a more personal level um in reality did care for this woman like you know they kind of reflect the public opinion because we don't see the public really at all in this film except for like the photographers after the church scene you know so i guess that was there to more emphasize that she is cared for you know she might not feel it in this household in this family but there is hope for her outside of that um but i felt like everyone gave a pretty good performance you know i didn't really there wasn't like one person where i was like you know they could have done better um yeah yeah i i never really got bored when someone opened their mouth you know what i mean i'm I'm such a huge fan of like timothy spall and sean harris and uh, even the kids playing uh william and harry um like those two kid actors Mm -hmm. are are excellent too um great and uh one thing I want to say about Spall's character, it's like, I, I I like the arc he went through. Like yeah, like there are moments like there's that sit down conversation he has with her like outside like when, <laughs> I, well I guess this is just a personal favorite moment of mine in the movie. Like when <laughs> Diana thinks she's all by herself, she talks to that bird, who we know yeah. that bird was only bred to be hunted and killed. Again, right? Uh, much there are many. You know, allusions to other things that you, you could, you know, see Diana's, um, you know, connection to, like currency or birds, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, like what her life means, like in this rural family. She had this conversation right. with a bird, just talking to the bird. And it's like a sweet moment. And then, like, he comes in from behind Spall's character and, like, sits down beside her and, like, talks to her about, like, you know, being the lo- horse. Yeah, the horse. Again, another the thing. The horse. The whole horse story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and then at the end of it, like, you, like he is really trying to say, you have to get in line. Like, this is this is what this yeah. life is. This is what being Lord, right. Lord of the Crown is. And then she just goes, no, I don't want to be that horse. I don't want anybody, you know, to die for me. And I, I don't, I hope that horse, like, uh, um, you know, was not, you know, put in line. Like, I hope that horse is free now or whatever. Like, I, I love moments. Stays moment, wild. Yeah, that stays wild. I love moments like that. Like, and I, I love that moment, too, where she tries desperately to have this moment by herself. This very weird moment of her talking to a bird. And yet Spall's character just interrupts that. <laughs> Hello. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Oh my so, gosh, yeah, she had no privacy. Yeah, no privacy at all. Um, there's uh. one there's one thing I wanted to touch on, which I completely okay. forgot about because I was so I really want to talk about that bird scene. Um, <laughs> what what else can we say about uh, this movie, Spencer, Alex? Was was there anything mm-hmm. that was that stuck out to you that you, that you wanted to talk about? I think I covered most of it. Um you know, I think it continues, kind of like I mentioned in the beginning with the overexposed country shot, you know, continuing to kind of deconstruct the myth of monarchy that I think most mainstream media likes to put forward, I'd say, especially before Harry and Meghan announced that they were leaving the royal family. Um you know you're just constantly because i feel like there's all like there's a conception of what it is like to be in the royal family you know what english countryside is what english wealth looks like all these things 
And I think more and more lately, we are seeing media that works to kind of tear that down a little bit, you know, take out the romantic, like the romanticism, take out the, um, the idyllic kind of nature of it, you know, doing that with the monarchy while, you know, Netflix also pumps out um, a Christmas prince in the third you know princess switch movie which again deals with like vaguely uh european kind of uk-ish monarchy from unknown countries or whatever um so i think it's interesting you know it's like i'd say as a culture especially after last summer summer of 2020 um people are very aware of you know they want transparency from institutions right like i just think of you know after george floyd's death and the whole defund the police movement you know or just wanting transparency from uh those those in power like police officers or even i think you could look at um kind of how people want to blow up our current political system whether you are you know on the progressive side or on the far right side you know like there is this desire i think in the public for people in power to have transparency and to kind of like deconstruct those institutions that create power um and i know just from people i talk to in england like my friends in england um it's the same for the monarchy you know people are just they're like it's the queen you know like she has too much money no one really cares (laughs) you know it's just like it's like this old tradition that they like some people i would i wouldn't say everyone but like people i know kind of want to like deconstruct and see get transparency from that as well and so i think you know both in the movie like the plot of the movie but then also um and the messaging of the movie like the like the subtext it's all about just trying to it's 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 playing into our desire to see in right we're the one public that actually gets to see into the house um but then also i think in doing that we're able to kind of see these toxic traditions you know they mentioned tradition a lot in this movie that kind of sustain this institution but ultimately probably don't work as much anymore as they used to you know and like we're kind of as a culture moving past that um so yeah that's i think that's what stays apart from christian stewart's performance that's what stays with me right is just how it's not really i guess i think it's just reflecting that sentiment that is happening right now across the world you know in these kind of very developed countries so yeah yeah that's my hot take (laughs) exactly and i love that take alex um thank you (laughs) and and uh i just i i I do remember what i was gonna say earlier which i okay yeah go for it um i brought up spall's major character and i was saying Mm -hmm. like his arc i enjoyed because yeah that that moment with a bird but then also like she uh diana in the movie um she asks oh uh, no she didn't she doesn't ask she just says straight out like Hey, Major, you're the one who put that book on my bed. Mm. And that book is what, what I want to talk about. Uh, Anne Boleyn. It's like, um, uh, when spe- uh, when um, Princess Diana, like, has, like, her, her visions of, like, what's real, what's not, uh, intermixed with that is, like, uh, moments where she sees Anne Boleyn. Which I know just a tiny bit about. I don't know enough about Anne Boleyn. Uh, Alex, I don't, I don't know how much you know about Anne Boleyn, but that's another aspect of, like... about her... 
oh, you a did? bit in school. But then I also know a lot about the musical Six, which is about Henry VIII's six wives. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, so basically, like, yeah, it's he was married to Catherine of Aragon. She comes into the picture. Um, he denounces his religion for her, gets excommunicated from the church. But then Henry VIII creates his own religion, the Church of England, which then he becomes the leader of in order so that he can marry Anne Boleyn, basically. Um, but then Jane Seymour comes along. I think it's Jane Seymour. Um, because Anne can't give him the heirs that he wants, I think, is the issue. Because he wants a son. Um, and, you know, so he's... And then he gets into Jane and has a son with Jane. And Anne's kind of just shoved aside and beheaded, ultimately. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the gist of what her story is. Yeah, and I liked that connection. That I, th- I think... Diana in this movie says early on, I think talking to herself that her family has like ties to Anne Boleyn. I, th- I think yes. that's mentioned, and yeah, and then an entire subplot or what the film drives to towards the end is the fact that like this giant house that they're all in, celebrating you know Christmas uh, you know, with the royals. Like uh, next to this giant house is like the house Diana grew up in, and that's eventually where she tricks to in the end. Um, to kind of like tie everything together um, like right. her, her past and then Anne Boleyn is also tied into that like that past and yeah uh, this would be like my final thoughts like it, it, just knowing that you know even way back then like this continues to happen where we see it if anything, everybody knows like Princess Diana like her fate is ultimately due to you know <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, the monarchy, you know, celebrity, like she's a victim, like we know, mm-hmm. and this just keeps happening. And uh, th- there are people who are, you know, who, you know, uh, are in the system and they're grinded down and they they lose themselves and their lives. So that right. it's, it's it's yet another you know tragic, you know, uh, um, historical aspect to the movie that I found was like it's a, it was a good connection, and then tying all that into another way of like the the major character trying to put her in line uh, by basically warning her like hey here's what happened to Anne Boleyn you know it could happen to you or just be careful because this is not the first time that somebody you know uh, has met uh, a dark fate because of this uh, this history this monarch but yeah that's what I wanted to bring that up too because I found that uh, fascinating um, tying that oh, into yeah. real life history um, right but yeah it made it seem like yeah, and it's works again back on the horror side. It's like Anne Boleyn haunts the house still. Yeah, which yeah. just made it cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think I think that's uh, any any final final words, Alex, on Spencer as uh, as we wrap up. No, I think that's it. Yeah, I, th- I think we covered it. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I think so. So, so there you go. Uh, I'm happy we both liked it because. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> been kind of awkward if we not, if like one of us did one or neither of us, neither of us yeah. did oh my gosh uh, uh, I, I, I wanted to mention that uh, uh, Rachel House and Child I talked to her briefly about Spencer she did not like Spencer because she saw it at Tribeca earlier this year um and then i have another friend who uh like uh, she 
did not like uh, Jackie for a lot of reasons, and mm-hmm. I have a feeling like she won't like Spencer for a lot of the same reasons yeah. because it's not like your your basic standard biopic, which it's not. It's not. Yeah, but I like that because yeah, I think exactly. your basic standard biopic is kind of boring. Yeah, yeah. Like you need to do something with it to make it, you know, a little. Like you need. I think there is so much room for. I, I just okay what bugs me I'm like if you want an actual historical plot for plot summary of what happened in the past then watch a documentary mm-hmm. like that's what you need like don't, like I think film there should be room for creative liberties you know and I think it, but and I think more people need to go in with that mindset you know if you go in and you're like I don't really know what to you know we'll just see where this takes me I think then you'll enjoy it a little more but you know that's not up to some people's preferences and that's fine you know it's just it just whatever your preferences are but right yeah and i'm interested to see uh what uh, uh pablo loren is going to do next because apparently he's going to mm. do um he's going to wrap up this trilogy of okay. of a, a quote-unquote you know biopics about um tragic uh female figures historical right. female figures so i uh, he hasn't said which one he's going to do next but uh mm. i don't know who knows I, I had that in mind while watching it too it's like 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 what other figure could he do next and how how will that look and um yeah right. so um, well i wonder because this is sorry no, yeah, this go is ahead. giving me on a tangent because you have to think about like because I was thinking about this too you know like Jackie and Diana are both women who were kind of thrust into a position of power right like they're not the ones in power in these in either situation like Jackie's not the president Diana's not the queen right right they're just accessories um, to the public eye of the person in power um, and I felt like I like Diana ended a lot more positively than Jackie did in my mind. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, so I might have a different take if I watched it recently. So again, I guess it, and they both have to do with homes, right? Like it's like uh, Laurent's very focused on the concept of like structures that aren't homes, but like are forced to be homes, but feel more oppressive than they do homey. So I feel like that third person's gonna have to fit into that somehow it's gonna be hard to do because um, i i think he picked like the like the two like the two perfect subjects and right. it's hard to it's hard to not necessarily top but like you know uh find a, another female historical figure who fits in line with that because like yeah right it, I, I i it's been a while since i've seen check i i've been meaning to rewatch it this week but i just you know, yeah. uh, couldn't fit it I, in. I was in the same boat, yeah. But I remember watching that movie and just being fascinated with like, how they presented the White House and how, mm-hmm. n- not to the extent of Spencer, where I found it completely like a horror movie. Like it mm-hmm. did, it did like feel unsettling. It was really based on uh, like her, you know, Jack, Jackie's whole arc in that movie in the beginning is like remodeling that house. And then right. at the end, it just feels like not at home anymore. It, it, no. if, 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 if at one point it did. But uh, but yeah. But anyway, but, you know, good luck to Pablo. We'll see what he does next. And <laughs> I'm excited to find out. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, thank you, Alex. This was a great talk. Um, yeah. Before we go, plugs. Where can people listening find yes. you online? Yeah. So I am on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac. That's Isaac like the Bible, except a K instead of a C. Um, and you can check out my podcast, Dream a Little Deeper. It is a critical retrospective of Walt Disney animated films. So we start with Snow White. We're going to go all the way to right now, Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, 
currently we're in production for our second season right now so that'll i'm hoping it'll be out in november like later this month maybe early december so um yeah we're excited to get that back on the ball and we hope you will listen to it because it's a lot of fun you should you should listen to it yes please listen to it um (laughs) alex and harrison they are both amazing um thank you thank you alex yeah thank you this together with um a segment for spencer so it's a spencer eternals episode uh and and that's it uh basically it's it's like two two sides of like the my like it's it's like my spectrum of movies it's like the the little (laughs) independent film i really like and also the big blockbuster movie i really like so uh i love it all right good yeah, we have two Eternals likers on the call. Oh, I mean, I well, here, let me just get started. Hello, Jacob. Yeah. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Marcella? I'm good. We were talking a bit off mic. I wanted to get this on mic. Um, I okay. First off, we both like Eternals. Okay, let's get that out of the way. All right. Eternals likers. TM. Yes. <laughs> now, I I am. I was just gonna say. Uh, before I said, you know what, let's save this for the show. Like, I uh, lately on these episodes on the Talk from Society podcast, I've been doing these segments on movies I like, which is good. <laughs> I, I, I try not to. Oh, and then also, it's I, I've had a good streak lately of like seeing good movies in theaters, like you know, good mm-hmm. uh, new movies, and I and, and also I never want to do like an episode where I'm just like shitting on something. Like the like the closest I, I came a few uh, weeks months ago was like talking about Jungle Cruise, which I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's fine, but you know, eh, whatever. But other than that, like. You know, on this episode, I was talking to you about this uh, before we started, Jacob. Like, I have Spencer as another segment, um, and like, yes, this this episode in particular covers my range of like, you know, small independent movie starring you know Kristen Stewart, which I love, and then also big, huge MCU blockbuster Eternals, which I also very much I'm close to loving, but I think it's like a great movie. I can't wait to talk to you about it, Jacob, because I know you're a fan, and I know you're more of an expert definitely much more an expert than i am when it comes to eternals okay because <laughs> I, I i i remember it may it may have been like the day after i saw it that i saw your reaction to it mm-hmm. um and you're you know uh, sharing some insight about the comics you've read uh, uh covering eternals and i thought you know would be great to have you on the show and i finally asked you it's like be on the show and now you're on the show uh wish fulfilled um so jacob Let's get into it. Yeah. Um, Eternals. Talk to me before we talk about the movie itself. Talk to me about your coming into the Eternals. Like, um, like uh, how much of a fan you are of the comics. How much uh, you know about this world and your your you know anticipation for the movie itself before watching it. Yeah. So I, I like to joke that there's like three Eternals comic fans on the internet. It's like <laughs> me and at Karen X-Men fan and I don't know it might just be the two of us we're we're the only people who are really passionate about the Eternals Um, I back when they announced that Kieran Gillen was going to take over the book um, 
the so he's he has a current run on the Eternals over at Marvel now, and it's absolutely fantastic. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend tracking it down. It works if all of your knowledge is solely from this movie. It's like he did exactly the thing that you would want someone to do, which is like, oh hey, this isn't like referencing the movie versions of these characters, but as long as you know the movie, you are prepared enough to be able to read this comic. But um, so when they announced he was going on the book, maybe about two years ago, I decided I was like, I had tried to read the Kirby run once and I just like forgotten to finish. So I had gotten like halfway through it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to read every Eternals comic because Gillen is known for like weaving a heavy, heavily continuity story. And I was like, I don't want to miss anything. And with the Eternals, it's relatively easy to do. Like, there's 19 Kirby issues, there's a 12-issue miniseries, there's, like, eight sporadic issues between those. Then you have the Neil Gaiman run, which is about 12, and then you have another run that's another, like, eight, and then that's it. So, like, if you sit down, you can read every Eternals comic in, like, two weeks, and that's what I did, and by doing that, I was like, oh, fuck, I love the Eternals now. They're, like... They're genuinely one of my favorite comics, just in general. Um, the the Kirby run, I think, is on par with his fourth world stuff. It just got canceled way sooner. But if you were to compare the first 19 issues of The Eternals to the first 19 issues of The Fourth World, I personally think The Eternals actually comes out a little ahead. Um, it's got this great scope of like religious awe and grandeur and it's all about Kirby saying hey what if every world religion was just science fiction stuff happening to us but we didn't have the language to express that so we ended up coming up with religion to try and explain what the hell aliens are yeah and that's a great hook. I love that. It's, yeah. I don't know, it's exciting. It's fun. The characters are great. And again, in that first Kirby run, it's 19 issues. And like every three issues, you feel like you finally got your feet under you. We're like, okay, this is the grand story you're telling. And then Kirby is just like, nah, fuck that. Here's eight new <sighs> twists to this. It's like he's deconstructing his own book as he's writing it, which is actually something I think the movie does really well. But, like, issue one, you know, it's like, okay, there's the Eternals and the Deviants. Eternals are good. Deviants are bad. And then by, like, issue four, it's already completely turned on its head. He's introducing Deviants that are more complex or Deviants that have relationships with Eternals. Thena and Crow have this, like, love story that goes on between all of the books. There's the reject and carcass who are these two deviants who end up living with the eternals and you realize oh deviant society is bad but that doesn't necessarily mean that individual deviants are bad and i think that's a really cool idea um i've just kind of been rambling about how much i like the eternals but do you have any questions about the comics (laughs) did the film leave you thinking like how accurate is this or what is this how much does this reflect yeah well hit me with some questions okay first very basic question when did that kirby run come out is, is uh, uh, yeah what, what 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 years were those 
Okay, so that is his um, 70s Marvel run. So Kirby had left Marvel, gone to DC, done all of his DC work, The Fourth World, um, and then after that got canceled, Marvel offered him another opportunity to come back. He came back, and The Eternals was one of his like big return books. They were like, okay, you can have a couple books where you're just like creating new shit and you don't have to worry about connecting it to anything, and then we'll give you two titles that you used to work on. So he does Captain America, Black Panther, Eternals, and like Devil Dinosaur, and Machine Man and stuff. And it's a it's a great period in Kirby work. It's um it's very different than the stuff that he does together with Stan. And I think that that's something that's also reflected in the movie. It feels much more like something that is free of Stan Lee influence, mm. which I think might be why some people are bouncing off of it. Interesting. Interesting. Cuz uh I mean, I I don't I'll be upfront and say, like, I don't know much about the works of uh, uh, Kirby and even Stanley, you know, uh, comic book wise. And w- when I hear that, like, something is like Kirby influenced, I'm like, I kind of understand what that means. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, in, in in the previous MCU movies, people point to like moments in like Doctor Strange or like uh, Thor Ragnarok that has like these moments. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I guess I see the aesthetic there that's running through that. But then, let's jump into Eternals. Like, how much? Let's start there. How much of that influence really? Let's go aesthetically, like visually, is in this movie. Uh, comparing that to the Kirby run you were talking about. So, one of the things that actually kind of frustrated me with the conversation leading up to this movie is because a lot of people haven't actually read the Eternals. They, but they are Kirby fans because Kirby is quote-unquote the king of comics and like if you like older comics at all you like jack kirby because he's fucking best at it but a lot of people would talk about like i think a lot of conversation reflected only kirby's like surface level aesthetics right it it referred to kirby as a draftsman versus kirby as a full-fledged creator which i think does a disservice to him so the Eternals, Chloe Zhao's aesthetic for this, it takes inspiration from Kirby's work. Um, I think notably set-wise um, was their like Babylonian kind of the like complex that they were living in and having conversations in that had this like ornate bright blue um, like complex backdrop. I don't know if you remember that set. Yeah, um, but it's like kind of Aztec influenced almost and. The comics have a lot of Aztec influence because Kirby was playing with the ideas of like chariots of the gods, but then quickly realized, oh wait, no, that's kind of racist. Let's let's back away from that as a concept and try and bring things a little more complex. But I think what the film did pretty well and what really defines Eternals to me is more of Kirby's thematic leanings and his sense of questioning religion questioning orthodoxy he's a firm believer all of his work reflects ideas of like free thinking and the power of the like the dangerous power of demagoguery and the ability to control people's minds and like dark side in the comics to to talk about fourth world for a second is like He's not out to kill people, 
anti-life is not death, it's control of the mind. And I think that that's something that Kirby really feared, because he was a Jew who fought in World War II, and, like, saw Nazism firsthand. And I think that that always stuck with him. And so I think what Eternals did really well was it presented a lot of these complex ideas that he wanted to bring to people and it presented gods as godlike figures but ones who interact with humanity in a really in-depth and interesting way yeah so now i'm very much interested because again this is something like in my you know people i follow on twitter people i talk to in real life like i have a i have a friend who like we see every marvel movie now and like uh mm-hmm. you know we we have like surface level talks about this stuff because like we're kind of on the same level like uh we may know enough about the comics but we don't know you know the the in-depth you know, we haven't read enough to know um you know the like what you're saying like uh, jack kirby's thematic elements in his comics so i want to mm-hmm. i want to talk about that and how like me just i don't know let me just say how um how I approach Eternals and how I came out of Eternals. Like, I, uh, first, like, I love Chloe Zhao, like, uh, Nomad Land last year. That blew me away. And I think her approach to this, again, knowing very little about the comics, uh, I'm like, I love the way the film is structured because it is just so odd. And then as it goes, like, as the movie goes, I think it abandons like a three-act structure in my eyes, and we're just following these characters mm-hmm. as they're gradually like learning, learning more, more, more and more about the truth, and um, they're becoming, in my eyes, on screen as the film progresses, like more and more human. And then by mm-hmm. the end, they're just like basically in tears, <laughs> like 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 <laughs> that, that third act has like almost every character crying, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm watching a movie, a blockbuster that just basically is soaked in emotion and mm-hmm. and i compare this to uh matrix reloaded because that to me is another beautiful work of like dense uh like philosophy and you know the the uh you know learning to not accept what is like you know uh, um what's meant to be uh mm-hmm. and i i took that into Eternals as like a sign of like oh this movie like right in the middle it, it lays a lot out it, it lays out like what's what's happening it lays out like you know the quote unquote uh, bad guys plan and mm-hmm. the Eternals from then on have to deal with that you know for the rest of the movie and that's that's the kind of structure I like so mm-hmm. to me that thematically works I know it's like very unusual for people to come into this movie and expect like a regular like Marvel movie, like with like you know three act structure. Uh, you know, bad guy is clear from the beginning. Uh, then you have that final you know third act fight with a bad guy, and then things are resolved. This handles it much different, and so now I'm curious to see like uh, uh, those elements uh, that I touched on, like how much of that you know comes from the comics or comes from Kirby. It, 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 like you were saying before, there there. Zhao does do a good job, right, of like um, preserving those Kirby themes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the movie opened with In the Beginning, I was like instantly like, yes, you guys like get it. This is this concept, like 
it's almost overwhelming to read those early comics, the like scale of the Celestials and what they mean for humanity. Because in the comics, it's eight Celestials land on Earth and just say, in 50 years, we're going to give the Earth either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if we give you a thumbs up, we'll leave and you never have to worry about us again. If we give you a thumbs down, we're destroying the Earth. <laughs> we're not going to tell you what you're being judged on. And that's just the backdrop of the... Co- like, nobody does anything about it, because what the fuck can you do when God comes down and just says, hey, all right, judgment time is here. Good luck, 50 years. And, like, the Eternals are like, 50 years, that's fucking nothing. And the humans are like, shit, we have to get get everything together by then. <laughs> One of the things... I, I, I like that you touched on how this is structurally very, like, distinct, in that this is probably the most quote-unquote, plot-light Marvel movie. Right. I think there's a lot of story in the movie, but there is very little plot. You have essentially two main plot points, and it's like, Deviants are back, Eternals are dying, a Celestial is gonna give birth in the world. Right. And that that's that, those are the only, like, tangible things that happen. Everything else in the movie is just flashbacks showing these relationships build i love the flashback structure in the film i read a review that was like oh this movie is too many flashbacks it's like you're dealing with eternals you're dealing with people who have lived for the entire scope of humanity why the hell would you only want to see that in the present yeah i i can't imagine watching this like um if it were cut together chronologically because like to me that that takes away from that emotional impact and i i I think i I think i mentioned this at the beginning when i record the intro later but like spoilers here like when at the end you see uh uh icarus and oh and i should Mm -hmm. i should also say i'm very bad with any character name like in any movie, <laughs> finding out. <laughs> I mean, loyal listeners to uh, Talk From Society know from listening to Going Helms Deep, I know I, I watch these movies, I cannot retain any character name. So I'm going to try my best. I am to. right there with you usually, but because I've read every. <laughs> yeah, you comic, should know. <laughs> I, I know. I've got everybody, so don't worry. I've got your back. <laughs> okay, good. When Icarus. Like yes. uh, is is there at the end with uh, Cersei, like mm-hmm. Icarus is. And this is this is what I love about this movie because I was saying earlier, like at, at the end, everybody's in tears. The reason why Icarus, you know, just yeah, uh, basically stops being evil is because of those flashbacks. Is because of like him remembering the past, and to me, that's what's that's what makes those flashbacks so important all throughout the movie because it is about the past and like that's what makes us human or you know humans mm-hmm. humans and that's what makes the eternals human so i found that beautiful i i love that the the structure of the movie that relies on these flashbacks throughout the entire thing so anyway that was my little rant about flashbacks and how they work in this movie and how that reviewer you were talking about is wrong about it <laughs> well one of the things i love about this movie is that we have 10 eternals as our, our main characters and you know, you call Icarus a villain and you say he stops being a villain, but one of the interesting things, I think, is that each of the ten characters all have a slightly... all have their unique perspectives on yeah. what is happening and what the best course of action is to do, and they end up kind of breaking into factions, but not cleanly and not in a way where the people are ever truly aligned. Like, Icarus and Sprite 
are on the same side in this particular conversation at the end of the film. But one of the one of the fascinating things is that, you know, Kingo agrees with Icarus. Kingo, who is our like comic relief, says, Hey, quote unquote villain of the third act, I think you are totally right in this conflict. I'm just not willing to fight my friends. And then he just pieces out and is not seen in the entire climax of the film. Yeah. Because he's like, this is not my fight. I don't, like, I agree with you, but what are we going to do? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I say villain, but it's a, it was a very generic thing to say because, like, that's, like, the, you know, black and white standard we all live by as, like, mov- mm-hmm. as like movie watchers or, or story, you know, uh, how we absorb these stories. But I can totally see why... Icarus is right because that's just what he believes in. That's what he believes in. Uh, that he believes that that is right, right? What mm-hmm. what he's following, and yeah, the the, and, the, the the whole king, and not in like the bullshit way that Thanos thinks he's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also the the fact that uh, uh, Kingo just pieces out, like like you said, I I fully expected him to come back in a third act, and he doesn't, except at the very yeah. end after the whole thing, you know, is is resolved. Um, and I'm like, okay, that to me because like that's what you would fully expect in a movie like this mm-hmm. and again don't get me wrong i like these movies all right i'm, th- I'm right there with paul thomas anderson like my house is a mcu house right i, I yeah. like these movies but they tend to follow the same type of structure each time and when you see mm-hmm. a character like kingo you know leave you expect i totally expected him to come back but he doesn't and he has every yeah. reason not to and i see his rationale and the fact that they're uh, that he comes back into the fold at the very end, and they're like still on good terms, like the Eternals like uh, are on good terms. I, I I accepted that too because that's just who they are. <laughs> like, because who yeah, else? I mean, who else? They, who else are they gonna, are they going to be friends with? Like they, that they're living right. through this whole thing by you know uh, uh, with each other. When you live on an immortal scale, forgiveness becomes not even like something that you feel like you have to do, but something that is naturally just going to happen over the millions of years that you live together yeah so you might as well just let it happen and i think that that's a a beautiful idea and i like that this film like it takes its moral arguments seriously and doesn't you know like i look at like the x-men movies like the first x-men movie where it's like magneto has a moral stance that is totally justifiable but then he's like but i'm gonna kill rogue to turn all the (laughs) people and it's like they have to they have to bend over backwards to say, okay, Magneto's machine doesn't actually work and will kill humans. It won't just turn them into mutants because it doesn't have the conviction to say, well, maybe we should actually have a, maybe we should have a conflict where both characters have valid perspectives. Like one of them has to be overarchingly invalid. And let's talk about Icarus for a second though, because like, I don't know if you know that, like, Icarus being the quote-unquote villain of the end of this movie is the boldest possible choice, because that is never something that happens in the comics. Ah, Icarus is essentially the main Eternal. Like, if you're coming out with an Eternal book, he's probably going to be the guy on the front cover, because he is the hero that everyone follows through all of these series. And they turn him into the villain of this film without ever breaking that character. He acts exactly as you would expect Icarus to act, which is someone who is consumed with duty and doing the right thing 
and in following the orders of the Celestials, who in the comics are maybe a little more mysterious. They're not kind of as openly antagonistic as they are in this film. But like, to essentially say, okay, Icarus is going to be the exact character that you know from the comics, if you know the comics, but he's also going to be the villain. Like, that is some Iron Man 3 Mandarin subterfuge level of like misdirection and like i think if comic fans actually have ever read the eternals we'd see a lot more people actively pissed about this <laughs> like i feel like we get like a lot of last jedi style whining but i think just because people don't actually realize what's going on they don't know that they should be upset or would be upset normally see that's interesting thing that you bring that up because i had no idea and Okay, let's talk about Superman because that it, it, it was very clear to me. Well, I, I, I shouldn't say that because it's obvious. It's very obvious that uh, even before reading anything that Chloe Zhao said uh, about Man of Steel or Zack Snyder's interpretation being an influence on her, uh, while watching the movie, I mean, the movie itself makes reference to Superman and like the DC Universe and Batman, right? And mm-hmm. I, th- I, to me, it makes sense now because like that is purposeful because they want to, you know, uh, um, lift Icarus up to this like, like, uh, uh, like the supreme good guy in this in in this whole movie, right? And, mm-hmm. and and to have him take that turn, where yes, he becomes a quote unquote bad guy. Yeah, uh, I I think that like maybe that is a reason, and 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 maybe it's not because you know uh, these Marvel fans have read the comic because as you say, like yeah, you know, very few have right. Uh, I yeah, I think like it just subverts the standard of like who the hero is, and like yeah, I don't know. I think it is like brave enough to have it have that turn being in a movie like this and have it be like um very much like in your face like yes this is a superman type that's going full like not what you're expecting so it it does subvert that expectation of what you know a a superhero like that is um and i i I loved it i i i loved i love richard madden in that role he's really good and it's interesting like comparing it to the Snyder, like to Man of Steel and to the Snyder take on Superman, they're almost doing the exact opposite thing that he's doing because in this, Icarus is acting exactly as he internally would. His ethical compass is completely intact. It's just 100% reversed in terms of what the plot is asking him to do with his ethical compass. Right. But... For the Zack Snyder like take on Superman, they have his actions be the thing that are inverted, but his ethical compass is the thing that stays the same. So you have a Superman who is standing for truth and justice and doing the right thing, but he is, you know, breaking Zod's neck, but feeling bad about it. But he is placed into a situation where he has to do that. And it's, again, it's, I think they're both valid and interesting adaptational choices, but it's interesting to see how those kind of contrast with each other. And for me personally, I think the Icarus thing works better because I, I watch him do these things and I never think this is not what this character I know would do. He is just doing it for a different reason because that is the setting that he's in here. Yeah. I, I, I totally see that now. God, 
it's interesting. Um, why don't we talk about like the other characters in this and like how yeah cl- yeah and how close to like the book they are or, or how things uh, change in the movie. Like, let's go with like Cersei uh, and and Gemma Chan as Cersei. Uh, what'd you think of her, Jacob? I I loved her, and it's I think it's a really interesting choice to make her the you know central figure of the movie. She really is. You know, they talked about this pre the movie coming out, and I was always like, yeah, but you guys do seem to be advertising Icarus pretty hard. But then I see the movie, and I'm like, oh, no, dip. She actually is the main character of this movie. That's a, I think it's a great choice. You know, Cersei's whole thing is she is kind of the Eternal who has the strongest connection to humanity. She's a little more of a carefree, party-loving figure in the comics. Um, and she's constantly just, like, name-dropping but like in terms of name dropping it's like oh Genghis Khan was even more fun than you guys at least he knew how to throw a party <laughs> yeah Cersei I think she was she, it's a it's a great kind of anchoring character and I, I think it makes sense moving forward as well because Cersei is the eternal who has the strongest connection to the Marvel Universe as a whole she was an Avenger for many years she dated the Black Knight in the comics oh she, yeah you know so she has all of these connections, you know, if anyone is going to go talk to Iron Man or hang out with Iron Man in the comics, it's going to be Cersei because she they, they know each other. And I think that moving forward, it doesn't seem super likely that we're going to get an Eternals 2, but I could see her character moving forward in a way that, like, maybe they won't bring back all 10 Eternals for, you know, the team-up movie, but maybe... Cersei will continue to be there. Yeah, it's a shame um, because yeah, I think that's how um, Disney plays it. Uh, like they, oh, I've 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 already like uh, um, I have not been updated on like the box office result of this, but like it's it, it's like doing okay, right? And then but then like critic wise and also like fan base wise, not the biggest hits in that regard, which I'm like, I don't know what you people want. Um, but <laughs> it, 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 it will be interesting moving forward to see where these characters fall. And I think, yeah, yeah I think you're right. Like only maybe, you know, a handful of them or maybe just Cersei will like uh, uh, expand out and like show up in other movies. But uh, it's, it's a shame because, because I don't, it's, I, I like, I like this group all together. And, yeah. and I also say like how the, the film uh, progressed. I talked about this like uh, earlier. Like I, I love how the, the movies like um, structured, like we go through all the Eternals and I think this movie warrants its uh, length because mm-hmm. it is it is so many characters, and I think enough we spend enough time with them as the movie progresses. And I like how even like, characters die mid, mid, you know midway through, but yet we still you know meet more characters after that. <laughs> and I'm like I I like it because like each one really gets a chance to shine. Um, yeah. And especially for me, who knows nothing about these characters, I I I. I, I grew to like really like them because like yeah again like we spend enough time with them as the film progresses. I was just gonna say they do a great job of quickly and efficiently setting up characters A powers B relationships with each other C views on humanity and like setting up their moral cores that influence the decisions that they're gonna make in the third act like I think the character work in this is so strong because it's so quietly doing all of that work 
and you're never confused about why anyone is doing anything or why anyone is settling or arguing for the things that they're arguing for. It's so clear based on the choices and things that they fight for earlier in the movie. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, I mean, uh, we, we could go through the other Eternals, but we might not have enough time to cover yeah. all of them. <laughs> I, that, that might take us the entire episode. I just realized. We, but... Uh, uh, oh, were there ones or was there a character or characters you thought like really shine through other than like Cersei and Icarus that were like either really spot on in the comics mm-hmm. in a good way or like kind of like were their own thing and like an improvement over the comics um, in, yeah. in this movie? Um, so one of the ones I think that was a major improvement is uh, Druig and Druig especially it's it's interesting did you ever get the feeling that they were trying to set him up as maybe a red herring villain yes i got that especially when he made his own cult i'm like hmm interesting yes. yeah 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 i felt that and also hey i love barry cogan as an actor but he does you know get these slimy roles <laughs> you yeah. know I, I i can't help not think of him in killing of a sacred deer um mm-hmm. a true villain but anyway yeah I, I i did get that feeling jacob Okay, I was just curious how that played because in the comics he is a true he's essentially a villain. He is ah. he's never used in like a positive like he'll he'll deal with the Eternals. and that that's one of the interesting things about the Eternals is they have like in the comics they cannot die no matter what. Like they can't die. So because of that their relationships is like all right, Druig's a villain. We don't love him. But, like, occasionally we'll deal with him. <laughs> He's just, like, this asshole uncle, like, that you have in your family. But this, you know, this is the same thing as Icarus. He is recognizable as Druig. He is recognizable as the things that he cares about and his attempts to, his, like, disgust with humanity's capacity for violence and his wish that he could just take over their minds to remove that from them and he's like he's like what if what loki was saying in the first avengers movie was not just a lie but was actually something loki truly believed which is that like i love humans and i want them to have a peaceful coexistence with each other but the only way that might happen is if i mentally take control of them all and i don't know how i feel about that Uh, and i think that that's that's a i don't know that's a really interesting character and that's an interesting character trait and again like i said you know i was expecting before this movie came out i was like oh yeah the third act i 100 is just going to be the eternals fighting druid who is now like mad at humanity or whatever for not you know for still being violent and he's just going to want to wipe them out but that's not what he is and he but again he is also he's more on the on the fence than the other characters about the the climax he you know he ends up siding with cersei and the others but he is also like i don't know you know maybe we should be following the will of the celestials that's kind of our whole thing yeah i I, um i I especially found his his character interesting um and, and and like you said like i fully expected him to take that turn and yet he, he, he does it. And I think also that's like, again, I think a, a good move on, on Zhao and like their screenwriters just like uh, uh, uprooting those expectations, like especially if you know uh, the comics, like, like, uh, you know, like, like you, Jacob, like expecting that turn at the end. And, mm-hmm. and, and no, he doesn't. He, he, he remains on the side of good. And I'm like, okay, good. Yeah. 
I think, I think honestly, one of the challenges that the, the Zhao in this movie faced is that I think Zhao, is, from what I've read, she was a fan of the Eternals. Like they brought her on to pitch for Black Widow, and she was like, "No, wait, no, I like <laughs> this one. I've read this in the past, and it's great. Here are my ideas for it." Oh, that's and I good. Think she made like an adaptation for Eternals fans. But there's none of them. So, <laughs> so, like, all of the things that she did that were, like, really interesting and, like, exciting for people like me are just completely bouncing off people who are, like, just Marvel fans. Think of that, Jacob. Chloe Zhao, uh, Academy Award winning director, made a movie just for you. <laughs> and, and hey, you know, I can't be mad about that. <laughs> I, one of the things I loved about this movie and had been bothering me about the MCU lately is that this movie is very both reverential and referential of the comics specifically. Its Easter eggs are all comic book Easter eggs. Its sense of lore and things that it wants the audience to be excited about noticing are things that only a comic book reader would get excited about and the mcu lately particularly under the russos i think has become very self-referential about its own mcu-ness right like endgame is a love letter to the mcu but it is not a love letter to avengers comics and as a comic nerd like as somebody who loves 60s marvel comics more than anything else that doesn't strike me the same way like say what you will about Joss Whedon Joss Whedon is very you know his love was first and foremost of the comic books and I think the Russos were very much very cognizant of our audience now knows these movies more than they know these comics because these movies are huge and these are the like iconic versions of these characters but like Black Widow and Loki and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and all of Phase 4 has all been just so built around like oh hey i recognize that from that movie we all saw and to me that's less exciting and less fun because it's like okay yeah but like everybody saw them but then this movie is just like yo here's pip the troll and star fox and black knight (laughs) fuck you (laughs) and like like, i don't know for me i'm just like yeah good for you i love this Yeah, see, see, this this takes me back to watching like Iron Man, you know, for the first mm-hmm. time, and again, I should also, I mean, I should say again, like, I know nothing really of of comic books, and I didn't know who Iron Man was actually. I'm I'm that stupid in 2008. Um, and- My mom thought he was a robot. When we <laughs> saw the- <laughs> like we came out of the movie, she's like, "Oh, I thought he was gonna be a robot the whole time." <laughs> And, and then, like, I got like a uh, a, a flashback um, to you know two thousand eight, watching that movie, uh, witnessing that post credit sequence, going home, googling what exactly happened, and then I did the same thing watching Eternals, saw it, saw the post credit sequence, had no idea why things were happening on screen, came home, googled it, found out. Uh, it was it's Black Knight, right? That's at, that's who's gonna that's at the uh, post credit sequence, right? Uh, that character, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, let's. I there's one of the things that I really love about the Eternals was the day after the movie came out, all of my conversations with people who had seen it were about the themes and like dramatic work of the movie, and none of it was the like Marvel fanboy speculation bullshit that happens constantly. Yeah, with, like. 
one where it's like, oh, it's setting up this in phase four. Oh, let's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I, I don't fucking give a shit about Let's talk about this as a movie. But f- now that I've said that, let's talk about these post credit scenes before <laughs> oh, yeah. we get back into just, the meat of the movie. Just to back you up, like everything we just talked about in the last like, you know, 40-ish minutes, that's been on my mind. That's what I love about this movie. Like these mm-hmm. like mid-credits, post-credits things are just exactly that. Like post credit things like it, yeah. i i uh, and then i'll quickly say you can take them out and nothing yeah, would be lost exactly and i'll say this about the mcu like like my problems with it lately has been it's not weird enough just to the very mm-hmm. it, that, that's my very basic take on on the mcu like i'm not a huge fan of black widow uh even like shang chi i'm like kind of on the fence about but give me something like this uh that just blows my mind like visually and like gives me like this structure like this like structured plot that i'm not used to mm-hmm. and then and then just taking the the post credit sequence and the mid credit sequence at face value, the weirdness that happened on screen. <laughs> let's let's talk, let's talk about the mid credit sequence yeah. first. Okay. I I'll just say I I didn't know what was going on. I knew it was going to be Harry Styles. Like I knew he was going to pop up. Like I, I I had been spoiled. Whatever. Um, and I think yeah we and then you know, Jacob you and I DM'd about it like when that yeah quote unquote news broke but the news was just basically a, some guy who was at a press screen and just made it news and just spoiled it for everybody um, and like so that uh, I you 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 name the character I don't know what the what the name is now the troll thing came out of that wormhole Pip, Pip the troll thank you <laughs> and then I'm like wait is that Harry Styles. <laughs> 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 That's that was my initial thought, and then Harry Styles came out, and then my I don't know about your audience, Jacob. My audience went crazy. They went nuts. Yeah. It was like a it, for that brief second, it was like a rock concert. It was people in in my memory, people were screaming, but I'm, I'm sure they were just like gasping really loud. Um, but yeah, uh, let's talk about that. I, I I admitted this to my girlfriend later. I was glad I had been spoiled on Harry Styles because I am the kind of person who can instantly recognize Pip the Troll and Eros Star Fox, the uh-huh. brother of Thanos. I would not have recognized that that was Harry Styles. Yeah. <laughs> I, was I, like, I, I don't know yeah. what Harry Styles looks like enough to recognize Harry Styles. Like, that I, I'm, I'm with you. I would have been like, that guy looks familiar. Was he in Dunkirk? That's what, that, that's, that's where my mind would have gone. <laughs> Marvel already owes Jim Starlin so much money because Jim Starlin created Thanos. And he is like... In my eyes, the greatest of the cosmic Marvel creators. He does the stuff that is the most psychedelic, the stuff that is most thematically dense and interesting. And he created Pip the Troll, Thanos, Star Fox, and Adam Warlock, who's going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And I'm just looking at all this and I'm just like... God damn, Marvel better be cutting him a check for this like new face. Like, oh yeah, that's, you guys are just like that's another so issue reliant. entirely, right? Like they they're not paying the comic book artists and creators like en- uh, enough money. Um, yeah, it, they should be getting paid a lot more. I think Starlin said that he got more money for the like thirty second cam. Maybe not Starlin. I don't know who created KG Beast. Somebody who created KG Beast and then like a bunch of like mainstream Marvel characters was like, oh, yeah, I got paid more for the 30 seconds of the unidentified guy who they called KG Beast in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice than I did for (laughs) all. It had to have been Thanos. 
So like that's but, insane. Yeah, but let's let's just break this down. Yeah. Harry Styles is playing Thanos's sexy brother. <laughs> like, if you break it down to its bare essentials, that is what happened at the end of Eternals. They said, oh, hey, th- you know, you remember Thanos, the purple guy? He has a fucking sexy brother, and he's played by Harry Styles, and he is ready to fuck. <laughs> because his power, his, his Eternals power, is that he makes you horny. <laughs> See, to be frank in yeah. the comics he sucks because he's like a creepy you know he has like a you know a gross power but from what we've already like Harry Styles in like 30 seconds was like already super charming and I was like fuck yeah I am so excited to see this guy like hanging around with the Eternals who like while the movie is funny they're like a little more stuck up than this. The casting that I didn't like was Patton Oswalt as Pip the Troll. Uh, I, I don't know. Patton Oswalt, let's just get him out of Marvel stuff. Like, he's he's fine, but like, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, um, my friend get who Get nerds out of here. Yeah. <laughs> my, my friend who I saw it with, uh, she said that, um, uh, Patton Oswalt popped up also in like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I stopped mm-hmm. watching after like the f- first episode. Um, yeah. And I'm like, really? And he's Modoc. Yeah. And yeah, he's in, you know, one too many things. I, I do like the guy, but yeah, uh, o- uh, overexposed when it comes to Marvel or nerd stuff. Um, but yeah, and then, so oh, go ahead. Oh no, please continue. I was just going to move us to the second. Oh no, <laughs> Easter no. Egg. I I just wanted to point this out too because like when uh when it was spoiled uh, as news um the, the the Harry Styles thing and and when I googled his character, uh, I think on his Wikipedia page it said that like he was put on trial for like I think it was like sexual harassment or something, and uh, his attorney was like She Hulk, and I'm like okay. I want this. <laughs> have have, that, have the She-Hulk series be that. <laughs> I mean, so that is from a She-Hulk comic series that essentially was that. It was She-Hulk lawyer exploits. It was written by Dan Slott. Um, one of the issues is her representing Howard the Duck, who is suing <laughs> George Lucas for like ruining his good name. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, okay. But now I think now we can go to that the final the post credit sequence yeah. so dane whitman has been playing the, the whole movie he's you know cersei's boyfriend and it turns out oh he has a spooky sword that will turn <laughs> him into the black knight and he rides a pegasus which <laughs> a little worried about because they already have pegasuses in this <laughs> in the mcu yeah that's right so like he kind of took away his like yeah, he has cool sword and Pegasus, but like you remove the Pegasus, he's just a guy with a sword. But Marcella, did you recognize the voice at the end? I did not. Who was it? I okay, so I did not either. And I'm like, all right, who could this be? And like my girlfriend's like, oh, it's that Samuel Jackson. I was like, that's not Samuel L. Jackson. And people in the audience were like chattering about it. And somebody in the bathroom was like. Oh, that's Kang. I was like, okay, that makes sense. They're they're trying to do the like Kang thing in all these movies uh, this phase. Mm-hmm. But I googled it. Oh, and Chloe Zhao did an interview about it. That was Mahershala Ali as Blade. Oh shit! Oh my <laughs> god! And okay, they, and they were like, hey, 
why is Blade talking to him? And Chloe Zhao's like, I don't know. They'll have to figure that one out. Okay, so this is confirmed, right? This is this, yes. this is okay because. Uh, again, let's go back to my screening, and um, I, I had this conversation with my friend afterwards. We we're like, "Yeah, who is that voice?" And then, uh, I, and then we just came to the conclusion of like, "Ah, oh, who knows? We we don't know anything about comic books." Um, and but then, she, <laughs> but then she tells me the story uh, that like beside her during the movie, this guy kept like throughout the entire movie. Well, he was by himself. He was like basically cheering and like kind of like exclaiming loudly throughout the whole thing. And he was having way too good of a time. You know, there's. there's you know, yeah. we're in a movie theater. Just, just take it down mm. a notch. And then at the very end of the movie, like when that scene happened, he said "Blade," and then we, we and then afterwards, oh, afterwards, she told me that, and we were laughing at him. <laughs> we're like, "There's no way that's Blade. There's absolutely no way." So we were wrong. I'm going to apologize to that guy here publicly. Uh, sorry, yeah. we made fun of you afterwards, but you, you, sh- you still should have toned it down through, throughout the movie. But you're right, random dude. That was Blade. Wow. I can, yeah. Wow. Can wow. I read you Chloe Zhao's uh, quote about him? Please, please. <laughs> quote. That was the voice of one of my favorite superheroes, Mr. Blade himself. Blade, 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 yeah, she told fandom. <laughs> Mr. Blade himself. It's the cutest quote I've ever read. Mr. Blade himself, Blade, 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 yeah. That's oh how I feel God. when I think about Blade. Wow. Now, Blade and Black Knight have... There, there is absolutely no connection between yeah, them. I, I, I was going to say, he's gonna yeah, they uh, like help fight vampires. I don't know. That's going to be weird. How? Yeah, and, and I'm glad she admitted. Like, she has no idea why that's why he's there. Why, why Blades in the voice? That have have MCU figure it out. Have have Fade figure fucking, it out. You know what? That's how it used to fucking be done. Like half of the MCU post credit scenes in like the first half. They don't even like line up with what we see in movies later anyway. They have to all be retconned out because they're just like they were just people jerking off and like being like, eh, we'll throw this in at the end and we'll see what happens from there. Yeah. Like they had to have a whole like Marvel one shot to explain away the incredible Hulk scene where Tony Stark talks to That's William right. Hurt. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna bring that up because that was the most like very much like let's just just, just fucking do it. We, I, uh, I'm, we don't know what that's we're how doing. Thanos got in the Avengers. Joss yeah. Whedon just did it on a whim. He was like, "Hey, can I put Thanos as the guy that they're talking to?" And they're like, "Yeah, fucking sure, whatever." <laughs> and like, the post-credit scene to the Avengers is built around a pun that doesn't make sense with the movie version of Thanos. It only works with the comic version, where it's to fight them is to court death. And Thanos' whole thing is that he wants to bone Death, who in the comics is a lady skeleton with skeleton boobs. (laughs) And so, yes, he wants to court Death. But then in the movies, he's just like a weird genocidal guy. So now court Death has no double meaning. It's just solely, oh, yes, to fight them is to court Death. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, Uh, uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. That's just comic nerd. Hey, I, I I appreciate it, Jacob. This is why you're here. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, I think we should wrap up because we Can't, hold on. Yeah, hold on. Go ahead. I, so, no, I don't have so much. But God, this is just a total redux no. of my <laughs> top twenty-five film. 
let me say uh, let me say this because yes i did say before we recorded it we'll do like 30 45 minutes i could talk to you all night about this movie okay but i just have to be mindful of the listeners <laughs> how much yes. they can take no. but go ahead Jacob. i just want to talk about i yeah. want to talk about the third act and yeah. what seems to be a fairly clear metaphor going on where the two factions break very neatly into pro-life and pro-choice arguments Ah. as they argue about whether or not to terminate this life that's gestating in the womb of Mother Earth. And it's like the argument, the pro-life argument that is run by Icarus is like, if we destroy this celestial then the untold billions who will be born we have to worry about the unborn lives don't they have a right to exist and the pro-choice people are like no we have to protect the life of the mother earth we have to protect the people of earth and i think that that's just i don't know like just watching the movie they mentioned something about like oh we have to protect the unborn lives and i was like it's a weirdly pro-life argument and then as the movie goes on i'm like there's a lot of birth imagery going on here (laughs) yeah that that really didn't hit me when i saw it and then reading some reactions to it or maybe like a tweet Uh, i don't know maybe you tweeted or somebody retweeted it on my timeline and then i go oh of course that makes complete sense and i could totally see that as like Zhao and company just or maybe just Zhao herself kind of as sneakily as a director can in MCU like sneak that theme into the movie I, 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 I'm I I'm totally there for it I, I, I like that there's that parallel in this movie yeah uh, I mean out I of any movie religious, at least, yeah. yeah and I, I love the religious angle of this film which is that you know the Eternals are essentially angels or they are essentially believers in God and it's a the whole movie is about this crisis of faith where it's like, what if God came down and told us that every interpretation of the Bible was wrong and that he is cruel and vengeful? Or worse, what if we found out without a doubt that God was completely ambivalent to us and we were all just being grown to consume? And what does that do to people who have like built their lives around their faith? What does that do to the people who truly believe and who are good people and are the people that they are because of their belief like religion is such a strong motivating factor in our lives and this film really takes that concept seriously and and metaphorically says you know hey what if it's all not only bunk but what if it's the exact opposite of what you want what if you have been fighting for the wrong team all this time what how how do you react to that and this movie shows us 10 different ways that you could react to that and i think that that's really interesting yeah i i love that that's that's a reason why this made me think of like matrix reloaded because i think reloaded handles a lot of that also mm-hmm. <laughs> you know uh putting your belief in one thing and then finding out it was it was complete it was a complete lie and then having yeah. to basically deal with that afterwards uh that that aspect of the movie really shook me up and at that point i was like oh like any doubts i had about this movie before you know the first half uh in that first half like it all went away and i'm like i'm on yeah. board with this because this is really m- more than like a, a lot of marvel movies or any blockbuster it's like really dealing with these heavy concepts and 
I, I still can't believe this happened in like a, a, a movie that made, you know, th- this much money. And it's from the MCU, which is now on its like 27th film. So, yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. One okay. last thing I, I just want to say. Yes. And then I'll let everybody go. Is that <laughs> I, I, and this is, I think, a major missed opportunity of the film. And it's reflected in the fact that we have not talked about them at all, which is the deviants. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the comics, the deviants have an entire society. They have an entire order. They're all intelligent beings. And the film does a like Crow, who is the main deviant in the film and one of the main deviants in the comics, who has a millennia long relationship with Thena, which I was sorely disappointed to see not happen in this film Mm. i i wanted to see angelina jolie fuck a giant monster guy um (laughs) but like you know he they they try to capture a little bit of like hey you guys are committing genocide do you have any thoughts about that (laughs) and like the movie the deviants just get such a short shrift in everything. And, you know, we only have one spokesperson for them and we only really see him as a character twice in the entire movie. And like, I don't think people even realize that like crow in this film is played by Dan Stevens. Like, yeah, he, you know, he's, he feels like such a non-entity. And I think part of it is that, you know, they, they have so many effects on his voice that his dialogue is honestly a little hard to parse. He's not like he's saying interesting things, but we never see him at rest. We never see him conversing with anyone other than the Eternals. He doesn't feel like he's constantly on their tail either. He's just kind of like a vestigial part of like the story that, you know, it's like, well, we had to have devi- deviants in this, but they weren't going to be our main conflict but they're still here in the movie and they never really feel fully integrated. No, I'm completely with you um, because that that's yeah, that for me is the weakest point in, in, in the movie because it, it, it was definitely an interesting concept and they could have expanded it out. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'm with you. It feels like a remnant of like a past draft or something that they had or just a, they needed like a, a physical, you know, monsters or, or you know bad guys for them to fight and they go let's just do that but uh, not expand it like, out they have to be in the movie like, yeah you can't make an eternals movie without deviants but then they just and the way that they did it, it upsets me a little in that it precludes my favorite characters who are deviants who are intelligent and interesting and shunned by deviant society who then go to live with the eternals they can't be in a sequel now because like yeah. there is no society for them to be shunned by there's no the idea is like one of them is born a beautiful human man and the deviants are like fuck this guy send him send him to the gladiator ring and he gladiator fights like a giant red monster who we then find out is actually a poet and the two of them like fight to the death but then thena stops it and she's like just come with me hang out with the eternals we'll teach you how to not be murderers (laughs) and like I don't know. That's such a cool concept that we'll never get to see. You're blowing my mind, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 could have been? Um, okay, yeah. Uh, I do. I honestly. I, I, I well, let me touch on one thing I wanted to touch on because, like, I I feel like uh, to me this actor and I think this character is like my favorite uh, character in it. Um, 
Brian. Oh God, what's his name? Hold on. Mm, Tyree uh, Henry. Brian. Yeah. Uh, him uh, in this it's movie. Vistos. Yes. Fantastic character. Like, I, I, and like, I, th- I think he is the best character of the bunch. I mean, best mm-hmm. best actor of the bunch, uh, and also the most interesting character. Um, and I liked, like I said before, like the this progression of like revealing these characters or like getting more in depth with them. I liked that that was like it later in the movie, you know, like uh, because it feels like they were, <laughs> in a way, pushing towards like the most emotional, the most human of these characters mm-hmm. as the film progressed. Um. So yeah, I that I'm a huge fan of of that moment, and I also say I understand why this may be like a pandering sort of moment for the MCU to do at this point. But I liked that his character was gay, and I I, I don't know if you. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that was ref- reflected in the comics, Jacob. I don't. I can't imagine it. It would be, or I don't know. But yeah, the, no, the f- he 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 has no family. Yeah, <laughs> he has no family. <laughs> Um, but him having a family here, yeah, it, yeah, all that worked for me. Just for the very fact that it really it's it uh, hits those themes that it's been trying to that this film does is uh, having humanity be the thing that saves humanity. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's great, and the the scene in Hiroshima has caught a lot of flack, at least online. Yeah, and I I will say I think. I think part of it is more the well I mean part of it is because it's shown out of context and people heard about it out of context but like in the film it's the only flashback that's not motivated by anything it's just a flashback that we are enter and we see this important moment to his life and then we exit it but there's no dramatic or narrative like way in or out of that scene and part of me was thinking like and I think the imagery of them being on the site feels a little like, hey, are you just piggybacking on this like actual tragedy for your funny book movie? <laughs> and like, I think you could have done the same thing if that honestly maybe would have been even more impactful if Festos is in the center of like New York City and everybody's celebrating the end of the war. And he's looking at a newspaper that's describing the atomic bomb and is just like uh, completely yeah. destroyed by that while he's surrounding by human joy. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's a moment that would have maybe been slightly more impactful than what they went with. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. That moment definitely. I mean, again, like I can I can defend it, but can I really mm. defend it that much? <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, I, X-Men I, fucking opens in a concentration camp. That is in true. 2000, and that I feel like true. we just didn't have Twitter then for people to be annoyed <laughs> by it. Like, to be like, what? <laughs> the, like, and then share that scene online. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, Oh, your X, your fucking X-Men movie. That's going to like make fun of tights. It has Ray Park as a martial arts toad. Yeah. It's going to open in a concentration camp. Like, that's a little fucked up, but we just kind of accept it because it was, you know, it's different time ago. We different did, time. We were children. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that, well, it's maybe it's funny, maybe it is, maybe it was meant to be. But you bringing up X Men, I, I I tried to watch Days of Future Past the other night actually and that was and i tweeted out has there ever been a good x-men movie <laughs> it made me rethink the whole thing <laughs> I, and like it's it, it, it's it's an exagger it's it's an exaggeration but i do like a handful of them i think logan is the best one of the, of the bunch but still 
yeah, those movies, man, like to me, they haven't aged well. And I, I th- I'm glad that we're at a point where a movie like this, like Eternals comes out that has, you know, more weight to it than an X-Men, than any X-Men movie, except Logan, I think. Um, but yeah, anyway, just, I'm just, uh, but I also miss the cheesiness of those movies too. They, they, you know, they, they can live in their own space um, or they did, you know, rest in peace. But anyway, uh, that's my hot X-Men take. Um, I think X-Men one and X-Men first class are really good. Yeah. And then the rest are just varying levels of like, all right, whatever. <laughs> you tried at least. Um, X-Men two is just like all drab hallways in the final like hour. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I wasn't. Everybody talks about that one as the good one. It's like there's no action scene in the end. Like Wolverine fights Lady Deathstrike for like a minute and a half, and then that's it. No, it's like what are you fucking talking about? I don't know. X two, X two, I think sucks. That's my hot take. That is a hot take, and we'll leave it there. It's Jacob. Good for the first hour. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, and I also say I'm, I'm gonna do. Uh, this is one more kick in the teeth for X2. Uh, X-Men. Um, it, it was X2 X-Men United. That doesn't make any that sense also. That's a, that's a stupid title. like Because, <laughs> because it should be Mutants United. Anyway. Uh, uh, X, X2 also stole the ending of Wrath of Khan. And I'll never forgive it for that. Um, it's the exact same ending. Uh, Alright. Jacob, we'll leave it there. Uh, yep. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Uh, this was oh, a fun chat. Uh, I learned a lot. Hope the listeners learned a lot too. Uh, before we go, uh, plugs. Where can people listening find you online? Uh, yeah, so I have a podcast here on the Talk Film Society ah. podcast network called Monsters Never Die. We uh, just talked every Tales from the Crypt movie for our Halloween special, and um, yeah, it's a great time. I was that with Matt Carione. And then I am on Twitter at at Jacob underscore D Noble. That's D E N O B E L. There you go. Uh, uh, check that out. Follow Jacob. Do all that. Um, once again, thanks, Jacob. Uh, this is fun. Thank you. Yeah. And now for my catchphrase. Hey, see you at the movies. No, I never say that. All right, bye. <laughs>